We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. As always, stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes can be found at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for the retweets. Thanks for the ratings and reviews. Thanks for the emails. Just thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Eric Dickman, founder of the Five Echelon Group, which helps small and medium businesses create and implement marketing strategies. He also hosts the Virtual CMO Podcast and a YouTube show on work-life balance. Eric climbed the ladder of the corporate world, becoming senior marketing director for Oracle. While it was a great experience, after over 30 years in the corporate world, he became disenchanted with the values he saw driving big companies. He resolved instead to go out on his own and help smaller companies grow and scale. Eric now offers his expertise as a fractional chief marketing officer, working as a consultant to help companies with their marketing strategy. Eric explains that businesses that don't think marketing is worth the investment have often lacked a cohesive strategy and usually just employ tactics. So an overall vision for a company's marketing is vital. And yet many companies don't have one senior person just for marketing. His fractional CMO services is a way to fill that gap. We talked before on this show about the importance of marketing, of telling a good story, and in finding the right product market fit. Eric adds some important insights for both new founders and business owners looking to scale, including why it's important to have a strategy and not just tactics, why consistency is key, and why some testing and experimentation at the beginning is vital. Now, let's get better together. Eric Dickman, welcome to the podcast. Jari, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here today. Yeah. Well, you know, it was really cool because I had found you on LinkedIn 
And you were talking about something called fractional CMOs. And I think, I mean, you have a podcast and all this great stuff. And I remember I literally like, I'm going to cold outreach this guy because this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Well, I say that a lot, but the reason it's the coolest thing to me is because this is something that I do too. And I'm like, there's someone else in the world that had the same great idea I did. (laughs) So you were gracious enough to... uh, Accept my LinkedIn invitation. I hope it was, you know, appropriate because I get those silly ones all the time. And it absolutely, insane, you know. Um, and then we had a, a really great conversation, and you gave me some just really wonderful advice about my PR and marketing company and how to think about it. And I just got a lot out of that conversation. And I'm like, well, I got to have you on the show because this we got to share the wisdom of crazy uncle Jari and crazy uncle Eric to the world. So you're here for that. And that That's is very right. special. That is very no, special. I, I love that. I love that. I'm happy to be here. Um, so before we get into this whole idea of fractional CMO and, you know, kind of all that stuff, um, as I always like to say, uh, tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. Yeah, it's a long story, but I'll keep it short. You know, I was out in the corporate world for 30 plus years, you know, working my way up uh, through the ranks, you know, started out as a business analyst and worked my way through product marketing and eventually got into a pure marketing role. And I spent about 18 years of my career at Oracle Corporation running their global marketing for their financial services, uh, retail banking products. And it was a wonderful experience. You know, I got to travel the world. We had big multi-million dollar budgets and did, you know, big trade shows and high profile things, had great guests on stage, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, I got to this point where I started to feel that the values in corporate America, especially some of these big Fortune 500 companies, were just straying from my own. They just were out of sync. And you just saw how people at the top were benefiting in such a way that just didn't seem to trickle down to the rest of the company. And, you know, this isn't a conversation about money or anything like that, but. That kind of mentality drove a lot of thinking. That kind of thinking drove a lot of decisions. And those decisions, I think, oftentimes didn't help many people within the companies. And I thought, you know, I've had a great experience here. I've got things that I would love to share with the world. But small and medium-sized businesses are the lifeblood of the economy. And I would really like to take some of that wisdom, some of that knowledge that I've learned, and help small and medium-sized businesses really grow and scale their companies. And so I left the corporate world. I started my own company called the Five Echelon Group. And the whole purpose of that company is really to help businesses develop a marketing strategy, and then get that strategy executed so they can see some of the benefits of what marketing can do. Yeah, no, I mean, I I was in the corporate world for a while too and decided that it, one, it didn't align to the my ethos. And two, I was just kind of unemployable and unmanageable, I think would be the <laughs> word I like to use. Well. I kind of had my own ideas and I think that's a lot of, a lot of us in the entrepreneur game sort of like, I don't want to be told what to do, but not necessarily that it's the, I have a vision for the world and I want to share it. And I think that's at the root and the core of, of marketing, right? I mean, a lot of people kind of get confused as to what marketing is. And I, I just would love for you, you know, you've got a lot of experience in it. If you could just sort of define what you, what you think marketing is so that we can, kind of a level set because I think the rest of the conversation is, I mean, yeah, this is like going to be a masterclass in how to market, I think. 
<laughs> well, you know, I think marketing is such an undervalued tool, I think, for many organizations, especially I work with a lot of B2B companies, a lot of tech companies, and you've got founders and engineers and product managers who are so excited about their product. They're so excited about the things that they're designing and the features that they're building into their product. But oftentimes what gets forgotten is, okay, you've built this really cool product. Now, how are you going to tell the world about it? And once you tell the world about it, is the world going to care? And if they care, do they care enough to part with the hard-earned money that's in their wallet to buy your product at the price point that you want to sell it to be profitable? And those are a lot of questions that surprisingly a lot of companies don't ask. Or if they ask them, they ask them very late in the game. And I've seen so many companies just stall out and they're scratching their heads and they're wondering, well, why? You know, I've got this really great product well, maybe you do, but is there a market for it? And if there's a market for it, do people really find enough value in that um, product or service? You know, one of the great examples that I think um, we all probably can relate to is if you have an iPhone or an Android phone and you go to the app store and you peruse through some of the apps, you know, you've got these apps that cost 99 cents and you've got these apps that cost $70, $80, $100 for maybe a yearly subscription. Is there, you know, $100 worth of value difference between those two applications? Sometimes I see small products, a software product, and it does a very specific thing. And yeah, that's a great specific thing. But the value that it has is so much less than a Microsoft Office subscription, which costs so much less than what they're trying to charge for this product. And you just scratch your head and say, well, yeah, it's a great idea but it's, it's kind of a feature. It's something that's a nice addition to something that's already there. It's not a great product as a standalone uh, thing to sell. And so I think when you think about marketing, it's really starting to answer all of those questions. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I've been the technical person on some of these companies who have built the cool whiz-bang widget that never sold. <laughs> I can tell you that... Uh, <laughs> The art and craft of marketing PR strategic communications is extremely undervalued, and you cannot growth hack your way out of it. I think that is the big revelation that I've found is that a lot of tech founders will build a cool product, take them a couple of years to do, a couple million bucks, and then they'll go be like, oh, I got to raise money so I can go jam this thing down someone's throat with Facebook and Google ads and all of this growth hacky stuff. And then they wonder why their cost of acquisition is three times what it caught, you know, three times what their, their actual ASP is. And then they're like, well, we just got to scale more. And I, how do we solve this problem? Cause this is the difference between a good idea and a, a good idea that sells. I'm yes. firmly convinced it's all about how the story you tell your customers it's all about how aligned you are to the real need. It really has nothing to do with your product. I think you know Pep Laya over at uh, Winter always says it's like you got to compete on brand, and brand is the marketing mm -hmm. and the PR and how you talk about what you do. So, how have you found you know dealing with all these companies? What's the epiphany moment for them? Because I'm curious because I haven't found it yet. For some of them, they're just like, oh man, you know. You know, I think the epiphany moment oftentimes comes when they look at their product or service that they've developed and they say, this is a great product or service. Everybody's going to want it. 
Well, you quickly realize that marketing to everybody is a hugely expensive proposition. And it's it's a non-starter. You can't market to everybody. So you have to say, okay, I'm going to market to a smaller segment, sub-segment of everybody. And what is that sub-segment? And a lot of times when you develop a product or service, you have a very specific target market in mind. I'm going to you know, I'm going to market this to, you know, housewives. I'm going to market this to, you know, businesses in my local zip code. I'm going to market this, you know, uh, across the South, whatever that target market may be, you start to have an idea of what that is and you invest some time and effort into that. But oftentimes it doesn't turn out to be true. Maybe your product or service actually is applicable somewhere that you didn't even think about. Maybe the initial use of it is, not really where it provides the most value. Somebody else has determined that this actually works really well for something else and it's caught on in a different segment. And I've seen so many companies that are just stubborn about that. They're saying, no, we developed this product for this particular segment. That's where we're going to market it to, even though the data starts to show that that market isn't embracing their product or there's another market that is. And I would just add to that, that there is oftentimes this fear of niching down. Mm, And the fear is that, well, if I niche down too much, I'm going to miss opportunities that are outside that niche. And the answer is, yes, you will. But that's okay. Because if you work to identify the niche where your product or service is really embraced by the marketplace, your marketing is going to be so much more effective there that you don't even have to worry about those few outliers that you miss outside the niche. But people are afraid to do that. Yeah, this whole like uh, idea of just shotgun approach. I th- I, it's it's interesting because um, there's 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 the same kind of concept in storytelling, um, and it's the the concept is a specific story that's detailed has universal appeal, and so its specificity equals universality. And that seems a bit strange because you're like, well, if I'm talking about like my little experience and I can kind of get into the groove of it and like really kind of capture that personal experience, oh, I need to make it a little more general, a little more broad. And it turns out, no, you don't, because what happens is people see themselves in your story. And I think the same thing applies to niching down and having a beachhead of doing like one thing really good. Because then people see themselves in that. And then the rest of the the expansion possibilities, well, then now you have got beachhead. You've done something. It's it's actually a lot easier to expand. I mean, I think one of the examples to use is Uber. You know, when Uber was Mm -hmm. first starting out, they were just for black cars, Mm -hmm. limo drivers. That's it. That's all. That was it. You know, I think in their first pitch, they they go, ah, you know, this maybe will be a $100 million company. (laughs) Right. They had no clue. But what were they building? What were they thinking of? What would they, they, they had no problem. And then now they're into Uber Eats. They're into delivering food. Like platform wise, you know, can do it, but never in a billion years probably would have thought of that migration. And you're right. I think that's a very good point that if you're not coachable in that the data shows that your product actually is for this market, even though you didn't build it for it, you miss out on a huge amount of opportunity. And I really like the, you know, the niche down, I think is, I actually have to 
train myself to not be like so broad. Oh, everyone should listen to the Entrepreneur Ethos podcast. Come on. This is the best podcast in the world. And you're like, Jari, in my head, stop. Like <laughs> you can't, you can't reach everyone, right? You just can't. So, well, and the thing about niches too, is that, you know, not to get into statistical modeling because I couldn't, but you have to have a certain sample size, right? You have to have a certain amount of data. And if you're a small business, you know, uh, where you're just working with a few clients a year, that's a very small data set to draw a lot of conclusions from. And so you can say, well, yeah, I found a successful niche because I've serviced these couple uh, clients there in the high tech industry. So obviously my business does well in high tech. Well, yeah, but you don't necessarily know that it's a little circumstantial because maybe you've never tried to expand beyond that. So as much as I tell people to niche down, I say you have to do it cautiously and be prepared to pivot. And that's one of the beauties of marketing is marketing is part art, part science, right? And the science part is that experimentation is good. You do testing, you try different things and you see if it works and you have to be prepared for a certain amount of failure that some of your experiments are not going to work. And that's okay because the idea is maybe you're going to find some fertile ground where you weren't looking for it because you're doing some experiments. And I just wish more businesses would do that, but you know, budgets are tight. I understand that it's hard to set aside money when you don't know if there's going to be a return, but you might not know what you're missing if you've niched down too soon on too small a data set. Yeah, no, that's very true. So uh, how do you address the whole return on marketing spend, which is always this, I have, I get the same question on return on PR. Like, can you, what's the ROI on this? And I, I actually fail. I, sometimes I say, well, I can't tell you that. I don't know. Um, although we do run experiments and I guess I love that approach too, because I think it's in experimentation where you learn Yes, um, because you have to get feedback from the market. But I think that's the one thing that I've really appreciated about sales and marketing being an engineer, right? I know it's this sort of black box thing, but the ones that have done it really well have have this experimental mindset. Like I'm willing to change my mind if this doesn't work. So, I mean, how, how do you go about telling people or talking through the, 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 the return on marketing spend? I mean, is that a difficult conversation or is it just, I mean, I, I'm just so curious because I have this problem all the time. That's why I'm asking. I usually try to change the subject. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, because it is. I love what, it. I love it. I love it. What, what's the return on CEO spend? <laughs> uh, no, I, it's serious. No, I, agree, you know, I agree. I agree. I agree. You know, it, but it's, it's so true that, uh, you know, it's a fact, I think that the CMO position, you know, in uh, a fortune 500 companies is one of the shortest tenured positions out there because they tend to get the ax fairly soon because some marketing takes time to really come to, you know, fruition. It really takes time to start showing results. And oftentimes they're not given a lot of time to show results. And it's really unfortunate because if you look across the organization, how are people measured on, you know, sales is measured on, on monthly quotas, you know, yearly quotas and things like that. It's pretty black and white, but you know, how is, how is the product manager measured? Is he, is he measured on the, the quality of the product, the timeliness of a release, uh, the, the amount of features that were able to be put into the product? You know, there are a lot of arbitrary things that you could measure. 
But in general, I try to look at the conversation and say, marketing is a piece of the puzzle. We are going to create awareness. We are going to generate leads. And then at some point, depending on the kind of product that you have, those leads are probably going to be turned over to a sales organization. But if that sales organization is terrible, guess what's going to happen to the marketing metrics? You know, it's going to look terrible. We're generating bad leads according to sales. We're not generating enough of leads according to sales. Therefore, marketing's not doing a good job. You can really get into a battle of numbers, percentages, returns. And at some point, you have to say, what the organization needs to be doing is all working together towards a common goal. And if we're all working together towards that goal, you know, the rising tide will lift all boats and that's yeah. where you'll start to see the benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I've heard of this new thing. I don't know if you've heard of it called uh, revenue operations. It's mm. like this new kind of buzzword bingo -y thing where they take sales, marketing and customer success and put it all underneath the either the CXO or the chief revenue officer. I mean, they make these numbers, these things up. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because a big component of that seems to be like what you mentioned, the alignment of sales, marketing, and customer success so that that silo thing, the, oh, well, we got bad leads from marketing goes away because you're like, well, y'all under the same person now. So maybe y'all should figure that out. <laughs> It's tricky because, you know, for my own business where, you know, I come in and offer fractional CMO services, one of the things that I tend to look for are companies that have maybe a VP of sales and marketing where both of those responsibilities roll up to the same person. And the reason I look for that is because they're two very different jobs. A mm. sales mindset is very different than a marketing mindset, even though like you're saying, the two need to work very closely together to create that customer experience, that that customer success. And we see so much of uh, that being a focus now on customer experience design, customer success. But it's tricky because there are different mindsets. There are different things that have to happen in that buyer's journey, and they do require different skills. And I'm a firm believer you bring in the people with the skills that are needed for the task at hand, and then you work together to sort of streamline everything together. But it's a little bit tricky to roll everything up under one person. Now, maybe for a small company, that's what you've got to do. But for larger companies, I am a believer in different skill sets for different tasks. Yeah, no, that's so true. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the size of the company that matters because I've seen this whole customer experience thing in big corporations where, of course, they've got all the resources and all the organizational structure and the ballast. I mean, it's literally yeah. a ballast, right, to try to move the ship. Um, and, you know, I mean, I do find it interesting that people are starting to focus more on the customer experience and not just, you know, sales closes and then the rest of it goes into this black void hole of like, oh, now what do we do? Oh, maybe I'm being a little, you know, <laughs> on that. But um, what, so... For what you do, this fractional CMO thing, which I think, again, this is the same idea as I've been having, because of what I've found with small to mid-sized companies is they absolutely need the strategy and the role. They can't afford it. And they don't understand it. If they're tech-driven, they just completely dismiss it. They just go want to go raise money for digital ads and Facebook and all that blah, blah, right, blah, right. blah, right? Um, and there's a huge disconnect between, you know, the tactics in order to drive growth and the strategy and the grand strategy that feed those tactics. And like you said, 
You need people that have done it to sort of like, this is what we should do. This is the, the map, right? Through the forest, through the trees. And I'm curious, how, how did you come up with the whole idea of a fractional CMO? Because it's, it just seems like, well, of course, it seems like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think the easy way to sort of explain it is, you know, first of all, it sort of originated in the CFO's office at large companies. And, you know, just to be candid, a CMO per se, that role is really a Fortune 500 kind of a role. There aren't CMOs generally in, in smaller companies. So it's more of a moniker, something that people can sort of wrap their head around than an actual position. But I think the idea behind a fractional CMO, virtual CMO, on-demand CMO, CMO for hire, they're all kind of the same thing, is that there are so many companies out there that either do not have a senior person on their management team who is responsible for marketing, or it's somebody else's side job, or they've hired some junior level person in and they're doing some Facebook posts or, you know, uh, you know, maybe running some Google ads or whatever, but they don't have a strategy. Marketing is kind of an afterthought. Uh, and you can see that for some companies. I'm sure we all receive junk mail in our mailbox every day. I receive junk mail from the previous owner of this house. I've lived in this house for over 15 years. Somebody is still buying a database with addresses on there that are at least 15 years old. That's not good marketing. But what somebody's probably done is this is what they've always done. They've always sent out a mailer. They've always bought a mail list. And so they just keep going through the same thing over and over again. And whether you're a one-person company or a, you know, a global 100 company, you have to have a strategy. And the whole idea behind a strategy is that are your activities connected together and are they connected together to achieve a goal? You, you don't post on social media just for the hell of it. That's what you do when you go home on your personal account. You know, you, you post what you had for dinner. Um, but that's not what you do as a business because as a business, you're trying to accomplish something. You're trying to either, you know, I, there are two objectives. I think it's brand awareness and it's lead generation and the two are tightly coupled. Right. And so if you're not doing something along one of those two lines, what are you doing? Um, and I think it's really important that people understand what their strategy is. And for many businesses who aren't willing to invest in a full-time person to do that, a fractional model works for them, right? Maybe you just need somebody one day a week uh, to be able to come in and help you put that strategy together and then give you the tools that you need or the connections that you need to find the vendors to be able to execute that. You don't need to bring all of that in-house, but you need it. Yeah. No, I, I love your comment about yeah, social media is not marketing. No, <laughs> just to randomly throw stuff out there. But I also love the the really simplified on the brand awareness lead generation because I know people always ask the difference between PR and marketing, right? Yes, marketing is you saying you're awesome. PR is someone else saying that you're awesome. So it's it's like a good way to put it because I think it's this continuum that. Every business needs to do it. I mean, every every business plan, if you even do business plans anymore, but every growth strategy, every go-to-market strategy has some has to have some marketing component that is well thought out and connected to the to the goal and the results. And yeah, I mean, I Otherwise see it's brute force, right? It's brute force. It's, oh, it's just random. I think it's random. random. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just luck. Random, and and you can't like growth hack your way to better marketing. I think 
the strategy employed with growth marketing has to have some wood behind the arrow, which is what the hell are we scaling? Where are we scaling? I mean, I get get frustrated with this, not because, you know, I I don't think it's important, but because I'm having to always have a hard time explaining it. And I love the way you did it. Brand awareness, lead generation. That's what marketing is about. I mean, at the most basic level. And and if, if you need that, then you need good marketing. You do. And, you know, I, I, to go back to one of your earlier comments, the way you get that is you create a story because, you know, what you're really trying to do is that brand awareness is trying to make people aware of your product or service. Once they're aware of that product and service, you have to explain why it meets a need. What, what problem is it solving for them? And it's amazing how many people don't do that. They just say what the product is. They don't really say what how the product is really helping solve a particular problem. So you have to get them bought into the product. You have to make them feel like this is something that they're interested in. And then once you've got them interested, you've got to tug on those emotional strings a little bit because just interest isn't enough to get them to buy. And once you sort of get that emotional attachment, that emotional commitment, and yes, you can even do that in the B2B world, then all of a sudden you've got a buyer. You've got somebody who's willing to part with some money to be able to uh, you know, buy that product or service. But that's a story arc and you have to look at everything that you're doing to be able to create that arc. And it's all around consistency in your messaging. It's all about really thinking about who the audience is and is that message gonna resonate with them? And it's not always with a lot of words. It's with videos, it's with pictures, it's with other things that, that drive sort of that emotional engagement. And that takes thought. That's not just something that, you know, somebody does randomly after school one day, puts up on a website and magically you've got a you know, $10 million business. It doesn't yeah. happen. Or you just can't run it through Jarvis.ai and get some. <laughs> <random talking>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Which, which I'm a fan of those guys just because I like the way they I like the way they market actually. It's, it's amazing what these guys do. And it's even though they're a, a art of, you know, an AI bot that creates copy, the way they market, boy, so there's some really clever people doing that because they, they clearly they know that in order to feed their machine, there's got to be somebody that's typing it in. Like <laughs> you just don't like hit random number generator. I mean, maybe yeah. some people do. It seems that way with all these ad generators and, you know, I just, why do you think it's kind of marketing has sort of, I I don't know if it's fallen by the wayside or has, you know, lost its sort of prestige or maybe it hasn't, I don't know. It just feels like, especially in the tech startup world, I mean, there's like a lack of respect for it. I think part of it is the uh, is the fact that it's so accessible now. Um, you know, anybody can set up an AdWords account, or you can buy a Facebook ad. Um, you can have a pretty junior level person and send them through a couple online training courses, and they can get the basics on how to do that. You know, we're long past the days of Mad Men, and you know, the Madison Avenue suits who create these campaigns um, over some you know cocktails in the evening. And now everybody can advertise anywhere, you know, from the comfort of their living room. And I think that that's been great because it's opened up a lot of businesses to being able to advertise in new ways. But at the same time, 
it's made a couple companies very rich because a lot of people are doing it poorly. And so it just sucks the money out of them. And I think when people have that experience of not being successful, maybe they ran an AdWords campaign, they ran some Facebook ads and it chewed up a lot of money, but didn't really result in much. You know, they have a bad impression of marketing. They're saying, yeah, I invested in marketing. It didn't work for me. You know, I sent out a bunch of free pizza coupons in the mail and, you know, that just cost me a lot of money and didn't really generate any new business. You know, people have bad experience. They try something once and then they have a bad experience and then they're like, ah, I'm done with marketing. I don't need to do this anymore. Well, I think it's hard to be a business and not have a marketing plan because, you know, you can rely on your existing customer base, which is great. They are your best customers. Hopefully they'll come back and buy more and more, but not every business has a product that you buy more and more of. So, most businesses need to attract new customers and to attract new customers, you need some sort of awareness and you need some sort of lead generation capability. And boy, that's awfully tough to do without having some sort of a marketing plan. And so, yeah, I do think that at times marketing has gotten a bad rap, but I think unfairly so. Yeah, no, I do too. I, it's just, everything's been metricized. Like, hmm. I mean, there's so much data out there, so many metrics, so many like automation tools. And I don't know, it just seems the, because the, there's an art and a craft to it. I mean, just like writing, like, for example, someone asked me the other day, oh, well, you know, all these AI bots, you know, you're never going to need to hire a copywriter to because you just use the AI bot. <laughs> I said, well, I mean, I guess you could do that, but someone needs to know how to drive the machine because if you drive the machine wrong, the, the garbage you put in is going to amplify the garbage you get out by like a thousand fold. And you're going to have all this crap that doesn't even matter. Um, so there is of course the art and craft to it. Um, sure. Go to a social event with English speakers from the UK, from Australia, from the Philippines, from India, ask if they all sound the same. They yeah. don't. They're all speaking English, but they don't sound the same. How can you expect a machine to sound the same as you? It it may get 90% there, 80% there, but it's, yeah, it's very difficult to have a machine do something that even as humans, we have a tough time doing. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Coming up with stories and crafting a message and, you know, there's a real art to it. Yep. And so how, what, what advice do you give, you know, the, the, the new companies that you start working with? I mean, they clearly have a need for some fractional CMO strategy that's like, okay, we've tried a bunch of this stuff, like you mentioned, we threw a bunch of money at ads, which is not, I mean, ads aren't marketing, but part of marketing. We threw a bunch of ads at stuff, didn't work. We're frustrated. We just blew a bunch of money making, you know, Fagma richer, <laughs> right? What, right. You know, it's like, great. Like, what do you tell them? Well, what's sort of your process to get them kind of, well, maybe back on track's not the word, but more, per, just better at marketing. Maybe that's what I, yeah. Yeah. You know, if, uh, if you were going to cook a dinner for a hundred people, would you really want to try out a new recipe that you had never tried until you put all those ingredients in a pot, you know, cooked it all up and then served it to your guests? Chances are you'd want to experiment a little bit, right? You'd want to try making a meal for two and seeing if it tasted any good. And then if it tasted good and blew the socks off everybody, then said, aha, this is the meal that I want to then take up to a hundred. You want to scale it up. 
And I think one of the things that businesses often forget to do is that as they're building out their products, this is especially true for startups and things like that, you got to start testing the waters. You, you don't want to build something that is completely feature rich only to find out that there's no market for it. You've just blown all this money on development. And I think this is true for other companies as well, is that, you know, you want to set aside money in a marketing budget to start to do that experimentation, start to see what works and then start to be able to scale it. And as you start making money, keep setting aside money for marketing, keep that budget funded so that you always have room to do that and let that budget grow as you start to grow. Too often marketing budgets are the lever that businesses use to sort of turn on and turn off when they're having a good quarter or a bad quarter. Oh, we're not going to fund marketing this time. And that's really tough because marketing is something that benefits from consistency. It benefits from investment over the long haul. And if you are consistent with your messaging, you're consistent with your strategy, you do some experimentation, you make tweaks, pivot when necessary, you will see results from that. But I know far too many business owners that look at marketing as a spigot. And they said, okay, no, we're doing fine this quarter. We've got lots of business. No need to spend any on marketing. Next quarter, things dry up. Okay, turn on the marketing spigot. Well, it doesn't work like that. You can dump a lot of money into some quick Facebook ads or something like that and see what that does for you. But maybe you're not the kind of business that those ads are particularly effective. Then what? Um, And I think it's that consistency that is really hard for businesses to get into the habit of doing. is, is setting aside that money. It's keeping that budget kind of, you know, locked in and not letting the, the accountants at it. You know, every time things look a little, little bad, you take that money at slow down development a little bit. Yeah. Maybe push those features off, uh, you know, a few releases or that addition that you were going to do, or that new truck that you were going to buy, you know, for deliveries, <laughs> you know, don't yeah. always go after the marketing budget. Yeah. 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 No, I, how many times have I always seen that? It, like big companies, you know, you know, businesses like you either have a revenue problem or an expense problem. I mean, it's pretty simple, right? Mm-hmm. But everyone always like, oh, we're just going to cut expenses as opposed to, well, how are we going to raise revenue? And it's like, because cutting expenses is easy, getting revenue is hard. But once you get revenue and you understand how to get revenue, then that's the thing that's scaled. You, you never scale a company by cutting expenses. It's just it never works. It's a, it's a dying kind of thing. And I think when it comes, I mean, I get the same argument with PR. Mm-hmm. People tend to use PR as a spigot on and off and on and off. And it, it doesn't, you don't benefit from that. You need a constant PR capacity so that you're out there and a, a, a known source that's, that's like signs of life that you're actually contributing to the marketplace, contributing. Because once you built this PR capacity, people then come to you. And there's been countless examples of this where just even if it's not a ton, like being consistent with it is really important. So, you know, what do you have a certain number in mind, like a percentage of revenue? I mean, what, what's sort of your kind of criteria for, for like what you should spend on marketing? I think it depends. You know, there are numbers that are floating out there, you know, 10% of revenue towards marketing or whatever. And I say that to some businesses and they go, you know, they, they gasp, <laughs> you've got to be kidding. Um, but it depends on your, your stage and um, your goals, because let's face it, not every business really is looking for hyper growth. Maybe they've at a level, they're at a level and they want to sustain it. 
There's nothing wrong with that. You know, this Wall Street mentality of grow, 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 every quarter has got to be better than the last. That's not applicable for every business. Sometimes you just want to have a good business, be able to pay your people, you know, have the benefits, deliver a good product, and you're happy if you can maintain that. But even maintenance requires an investment in marketing. Maybe not as much, but it still requires an investment uh, in marketing. So I think it depends a little bit what the goals and objectives of the company are. How mature is it? Is it a startup? Is it a scale up? Is it a more mature business? Has it stalled out? You know, are they looking to sell? So maybe they're looking for some hyper growth. So it looks good for investors. So the number varies, but it's, it's a number, you know, it's, it's not just a rounding error. It's a number. And I think that businesses need to look at that. And I think they shouldn't be afraid to make an investment. You know, a question that I had from somebody the other day was, you know, how do you justify the expense of hiring somebody like myself or you? And I can't tell you how many conversations that I've gotten into with prospective customers and you give them a proposal, they have some questions, they want a follow-up proposal, and then they want more details, and then yeah. they want a statement of work, and then they want a contract. And, you know, and you know, a lot of times we're talking about something that's going to last six or nine months, you know, something less than a year. And my question back to them is, so that full-time person that you just hired last week, did you ask them what they're going to be doing in January and February and March and April and May? Have you, have you mapped out their entire year? Have you scoped up what all their deliverables are going to be? Think about the hiring process for a full-time person. You go through, you look at their resume, you ask them a few questions. Yeah, they seem like a good fit for the company. You're hired. Think about hiring a consultant or somebody from the outside. The pain that you put some of these vendors through when it's oftentimes a very short-term engagement with a very you know, set level of risk and the hoops that you make them jump through, what you're doing is it's just fear. It's just the fear of spending money. And you got to get past that fear and say, let's move. Let's get going on this. I've wasted so many months with some customers just in the whole process of getting to a point where we come to agreement. And honestly, the agreement is almost identical to where we started. It's just that you had to jump through a bunch of hoops to get there. And all that time has been lost when we could have been executing marketing strategies and helping that business grow. Don't overthink it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, that's that's one of the interesting things. I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times it's like, oh, we're hiring a consultant. We need to nail down every deliverable and ROI and we're going to judge. I mean, like th- the list is long distinguished. I've been through some of these things too, where I'm just like, gosh, how many more revisions of this plan do you need? Because in a month, this plan is going to change because we're going to run an experiment and we're going to have to zig and zag. And it's, you know, like, and, and I understand, you know, oh, I want to get the value. And what if, you know, what have you done for me lately attitude? I understand that. Granted, I understand that, but it's, yeah, it's a very, it's kind of discouraging in one sense, because like you said, you've wasted all this time where you could have like spent all the time and effort on actually doing something, which is way more productive and running experiments and then adjusting as you went along. I mean, what I tell people is, you know, we have to look at things in like month increments, like we're going to run some experiments. It's going to fail or pass or whatever. Then we're going to need to adjust what we're going to do in the next month or two, because it's a constant adjustment. I mean, we have to get the story right, but, and we got to figure out where the people are, but it, I, it's not like development. I mean, development, when I used to do development, it was really easy. Okay. Here's our development plan. Mm-hmm. It's going to take six months. These are the features. Okay. Yeah. It's going to change and they'll do change orders or whatever. 
but it's a lot more like quantified. People could understand I'm building a widget. Yes. But when it comes to this, especially like the PR, the marketing, maybe so much not in sales because sales is obviously driven by numbers. But I think the thing about sales that I've learned that can benefit hugely from marketing is that if you're a startup and you're looking to scale and you don't have a good sales process or a good sales message, no amount of sales resources you throw at it is going to work. That's very <laughs> because true. Because they can't, they're not going to sell your stupid message, no matter how hard they try. Because to your point earlier, sales and marketing are two different attitudes, two different beasts. I've rarely met the person that can do both effectively because they're a completely different mindset. That's right. But it's fascinating that now that I think about it, the only way to scale a sales organization, a company, is to get that marketing message right so that sales knows what to sell. And those leads that come in, like to your point before, they're actually qualified leads. Yeah, how many times have I heard salespeople say, oh, we don't have good enough leads. We don't, oh, the best one if you're on the development side. Oh, we we need these features because people are asking for them. And you're kind of like- this is going to be an infinite monkey syndrome. <laughs> We're just right. going to keep on feature creeping this thing until honestly, that's a symptom of you've got poor marketing, honestly, because clearly you haven't got the right customer because every time you come back to me, we need this feature. We need that feature. Really? Like sell what you got. Yes. I'm, I'm just, I'm just curious if, if you've seen that as well. Oh yeah. I think that sometimes it's customers just exercising control you know, it's like going into that car dealer to buy, you know, a new car, right? You, you don't want to walk out feeling like you got a deal. So you're looking for some sort of a concession. You know, what, what did I get thrown in? You know, did I get the pinstriping or the undercoating? <laughs> you know, so you feel like you've won in some way. So I think for bigger, more complex sales cycles or more expensive products, that often is in play. But, you know, in marketing, we talk so much about this buyer's journey. And it is real. I mean, people are at different stages in the journey, but the problem is they don't raise their hand and tell you where they are necessarily. (laughs) There's not a little chart that says, okay, this customer is right here. You sort of have to read the tea leaves and kind of figure out where they are. And you may develop a piece of content, uh, that is designed for this particular stage in the buyer's journey. But that doesn't mean that only people who are in that stage are going to read it or, or, or look at it. So you sort of have to look at things very broadly, understand what's going on. And I think this is where salespeople often fail to utilize some of the great tools that are out there. That's the whole purpose of a CRM, right? Is the ability to track all these interactions. And then you can look at it, see what kind of interactions they have and be able to make some judgments. So give you a simple example from my own business. I get people who inquire all the time on my website, you know, asking for a consultation or something. And I have tracking so I can see, you know, when they submit a form, how many pages on my website have they looked at? If somebody submits a form, they've looked at two pages and they're requesting it from a Gmail address, chances are this isn't a real lead, right? There aren't enough factors that are checkboxes to indicate to me that they have even really started their buyer's journey. They haven't done much investigation. They're contacting me from a non-company email address. This is probably not very serious. Whereas somebody who's visited 15 pages, spent a great deal of time, is contacting me from their company address. Maybe they've been to the website multiple times. Okay, 
So they're moving on the journey, right? They're consuming some content. They're doing some things. So if I put on my salesperson hat, I know now know that I can speak more intelligently. I can see what things they were looking at. What things were they interested in? Where did they come in? That's a great place to start a conversation. And too many sales conversations start with, yeah, what can I sell you today? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not about like understanding or getting to know the problem or the, the journey. Yeah. No, it's yeah. so true. I think that's why storytelling is so important. Um, and, and this whole thing about, I was talking to someone else about this today, about being of service. Like I, I have a problem with sales in general. I'm pretty bad at it. I'm trying to learn how to do it better because as a business owner, I have, I'm my first salesperson. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, you know, girl, right? and, and as a startup, it's the same thing. Like the founders need to be the first salespeople. Because if the founders can't sell it, no one can sell it. I don't, I'm sorry, that may be heresy, but I'm 100% convinced of that. That's the reason why a lot of companies fail is because the, the founders or the founding team haven't processed the, 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 uh, the, the methodology and the process to sell things, as well as the marketing message to get the people, the, the qualified leads to come in. Um, but yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's a very good point that. Yeah, the, the, well, the seriousness of it. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so, you know, here's a challenge that I would throw out to your listeners. If you've got a spouse, a significant other, kids, somebody sitting around the house, give them your elevator pitch. Hmm. What do you do for a living? What, what does your product do? Keep it simple. And see, and then ask them a couple days later, what do I do for a living? What does my product do? And see if it sticks. Hmm. Because if you, I, I can't tell you how many like spouses or friends or significant others that I bump into, you know, what does your husband do? Oh, I don't know. He does something. I don't know. Yeah. So <laughs> if, if the people that know you the best can't even explain what you do, it makes me wonder, are you any good at explaining to what your customers, what it is that you actually do? And that's part of the, part of the step in the process, right? You have to be able to articulate your product, your service, your benefit, your value to somebody else at the drop of a hat, because you just never know when you're going to get that opportunity. And if you finally get that warm lead and they want to know a little bit more about you, you've got to be on point. You've got to be able to articulate what that is. Yeah, no, totally. That's great. I love that. I'm going to try that. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Yeah. Have a cocktail close by. You might not like it. Well. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So, um, you know, for this next generation of entrepreneur that is kind of coming up behind us, um, what are some of the questions they should ask themselves about this journey? I mean, you you actually got to this a little late. I mean, 30 years in corporate and then decided, okay, well, time to go out on my own. But for someone that's thinking about being an entrepreneur, you know, what, what questions should they ask themselves? Yeah. One of the things that I think is the biggest piece of advice that I give to entrepreneurs is that you will find tremendous value in the network of people that you build that can help you on your journey. You need people that you trust. You need people that you can go to, ask questions. You need reliable vendors. You know, just like if your uh, uh, toilet breaks and you need to call a plumber, you it's so nice to be able to have somebody in your contact list that said, I can call this guy. He's reliable. I know he will be here. I know he will do a good job. And we all know what it's like when something happens in your home and you need to hire somebody and you have no idea where to go. 
it's very frustrating. And I think especially for a lot of young entrepreneurs, you know, we live in an era of social media and connectivity, but it's all very superficial. It's all about likes, right? It's, there's not really engagement there. And so maybe you have a big network, but it's not a network that's deep. It's just this very superficial network. And one of the things that I wish I had done when I left the corporate world is I had all these great enterprise level contacts. And here I was going to service small and medium sized businesses. Those enterprise level contacts really weren't all that interested in what I was doing. Uh, I needed to rebuild that network kind of from scratch to focus on businesses and people that I uh, peers that I could connect with that were more interested in the market that I was serving. So I would say for entrepreneurs, especially if you haven't started yet, start building that network, start connecting with people who can be valuable resources to you along the way, start to, you know, understand what are good businesses, what are good tools, what are the kinds of things that can help your business grow and scale? Don't just jump into the product and say, I'm going to figure all that stuff out later really work on building that solid foundation so that as your business grows, you've got the tools and the resources that you need to help you scale effectively. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. Uh, Eric, really appreciate your time, man. I mean, this has just been, like I said, a masterclass in, in, in understanding marketing and fractional CMO and just the whole, whole process. Um, Cause it's always hard for me sometimes to like, you know, Convince is not the word. It's just, I get frustrated with it because I'm like, how, how come this isn't as obvious to me as it is to everyone else? You know? And I found someone and it's obvious too. This is awesome. Well, there's a real power in it. You know, yeah. we're, we're recording this the day after one of these Apple events where they just uh, launched some new uh, MacBook Pros and the amount of free media that they earned from that event. It's probably incalculable in terms of the millions and millions and millions of dollars that it's worth. Now, not every company can be an Apple, but it just shows that when you've got your stuff together and you use PR, you use marketing, you use communication, you use storytelling, you bring all of these things together, the results, I mean, it's the largest company in the world. We make examples of it all the time, but we make examples of it because they're just so freaking good at what they do. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, just, just read through any news source today and you will find references to what they did yesterday and they didn't pay a penny for it. Yeah, I know. That's the power of PR and good marketing. So yep. Eric, thanks again. Stay safe and uh, really appreciate all your insights. Jerry, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thanks again, Eric, for being on the show. I really appreciate talking marketing and strategy. It's one of the, my most favorite things in the world to do, especially storytelling as it that helps marketing. So as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Eric. Hone your elevator pitch. Be ready and able to clearly and concisely tell someone what you do and or sell. Eric suggests pitching a family member and then testing them a few days later by asking them to tell you what you do. Build a good network. The sooner, the better. Create a good network of people you can turn to for advice, referrals, and support. All successful businesses are built on strong networks. And we've talked about this before. It's a lonely job. You sort of need a council of elders. You need the small council <laughs> to figure out your war plan or whatever you want to call it if you're a fan of you know Game of Thrones. Allocate part of your budget to marketing as early as possible so you can start testing out your product and figuring out your market. Sometimes businesses discover their market is not who they originally thought. So be ready to pivot 
when the data steers you in a different direction. Yeah, every <laughs> there's not an entrepreneur I don't know that hasn't pivoted because they start out well in way to get a bunch of market feedback. And then it's like, oh, that's not going to work. We should go do something else. So be open to that. Don't just be like, oh, it's my product. I didn't fall in love with it. Like read the market. That's ultimately your success is going to be, does anyone care about this enough to buy it? So there you have it. Some actionable insights I learned from my interview with Eric. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.